Hello and welcome everyone to this inaugural episode of Globally Lit, a podcast of international literature and translation brought to you by the Truth Center for International Writers at George Mason University and Books Across Borders. My name is Matthew Davis and I am the founder and executive director of the Truth Center. And since this is our inaugural episode of Globally Lit, I thought I would take a brief moment to describe both the podcast and the two organizations sponsoring it. During each episode of Globally Lit, we hope to showcase one work of international literature that has been translated into English and published by an independent American publisher. Each episode will have three parts, an interview with the writer of the selected work, a conversation between the translator of the work and another literary translator, then a review or recommendations of other works of international literature that echo the themes, language, style, or location of the featured book. In this way, we hope you get a great sampling of literature in different languages from some of the best international writers and translators working today. Globally Lit is brought to you by the Choose Center and Books Across Borders. The Choose Center supports international writers and translators through fellowships and events, and it strives to be a center that promotes greater global understanding through literature and the writers who create it. Books Across Borders is a nonprofit working to connect booksellers and readers to the international literary world to expand access to international and own voices titles. By bringing our audiences and missions together, we hope Globally Lit can be a way to promote works of international literature and the writers who create it to a larger American audience. Well, hello and welcome everyone to our inaugural episode of Globally Lit. My name is Matthew Davis, and I'm the founding director of the Chu Center, and I'm so happy to welcome Abdullah Tai as Globally Lit's first guest. Abdullah was born in Rabat, Morocco, writes in French, and lives in Paris, and is the author of several novels, including Infidels, Salvation Army, and A Country for Dying. His novel, Salvation Army, was adapted into a film of the same name in 2014, and was hailed by the New York Times as giving, quote, the Arab world, its first on-screen gay protagonist. Today, we are going to discuss Abdullah's novel, A Country for Dying, which was translated by Emma Ramadan and published by Seven Stories Press this past year. Later in this podcast, Emma is going to be in conversation about her translation with Laura Maris, another wonderful translator from French. But first, Abdullah, welcome to Globally Lit. Bonjour, salam to you. Thank you very much for inviting me and for the interest in my work being translated in America. That's kind of a miracle. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining. It, it's, your, your work is, is a miracle. So the, it, it's a beautiful novel we're going to be discussing. But before we discuss A Country for Dying, I just want to start at your beginning to your birth in Rabat's public library, where your father was a janitor. I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit of that story in, in your early years and, and how you came to write. Well, now that's part of my mythology, if I might say, <laughs> being born. I was born in the, the public, the general public, uh, general library of Morocco. My father was just a little, little teeny tiny man working there in that library, but still they gave him and my family two rooms where to live. And those two rooms were in the garden of the La Bibliothèque Générale of Rabat, which is La General Library of Rabat. They were very, very poor because my parents were coming from the countryside. They were born in the 30s when Morocco was still colonized by France. And they lived the, the, the experience of being uh, colonized. They, they had so many memories of that they shared with us. And yet they moved from the countryside of Bimilal to the center of the Morocco, like because the general uh, the library of Morocco in Rabat is really next to the King Palace of Rabat. And Interesting. for me, it was always like, uh, it's not the idea that I, the, the, the vibes from books came into my body when I was just a little body. This is not my, what I fantasize about. I fantasize more about the idea that these people were nothing and suddenly they are, they, they share the same wall with the, the palace of the king of Morocco, Hassan II. And, <laughs> and at that time, Hassan II was a scary king. You have to say, a lot of people were scared scared of him. So I lived there only two years. When I was two, they moved to another city very close to Rabat, which is Saleh. 
and that's where I lived 25 years before moving to France. So I consider myself more a Moroccan boy from the city of Saleh than from the city of Rabat. Because Rabat, when you think of it, when I think of it, it's more to me the city of the powerful people, the people who speaks French, who wants to dominate me, the poor guy, and starting to speak French. So interesting, yeah, huh? It's more. It's more in uh, how to say to put this more in in terms of domination. Every time I used to go to Rabat, I was aware of the fact that I have to be dressed well, clean, not to behave like the savage boy from Saleh. And because the, <laughs> the people from Rabat were looking down on the people of Saleh, and they were always saying that they are crazy in Saleh, they are criminals, they are people from prisons. So somehow I am I. I was ashamed to be that at that time, but now I am more than proud to to be from the city of pirates and criminals, if I might say, the city of Sally, because that's what gave me somehow the possibility to think of what does it mean to go to Rabat and what does it mean to be from the city of Sally, which means the power. What is the power and how am I doing dealing with this idea of power and these people who just by the way they look at you they want to dominate you. Hmm. And in, in, if they want to do more than dominate you, they speak in French. <laughs> so that's interesting. So were you, when you were in uh, Saleh, were you speaking Arabic or French? And, and how were you taught? Were you taught in Arabic or taught in French? Uh, I'm coming from poor Morocco. It's only Arabic. It's yeah. Arabic. Most of the Moroccan people speaks, speak only Arabic. It's, they, we learn French in schools and high school, etc. But in the daily life, we speak only Arabic. And actually, me, I, I was in the public schools. Uh, there was no way to go to the French schools. It's for the super, super elite of Morocco. You know, those people who, who, who go to school in Morocco, but in French system. <laughs> that, that, that French system still exists until now in Morocco. And then after the, they graduate from high school, they go to finish studies in Paris. They learn about the French values of France and they return to Morocco to apply that on us. Huh. <laughs> so you see, this is, this is the world I'm coming from. And yeah. it, is, and it, is, it is, until now, it's still this very weird thing that the, the elite of Morocco, they are more French connected than Morocco connected. So I spoke Arabic, of course, and because I was dreaming of cinema, and I discovered that there is a, this big school in Paris called La Femis, which is a big school uh, to be a filmmaker or a, or a cinematographer or something like that. And I decided, okay, let's learn French. One day I will go to Paris and I will study in that school. So I need to, to know French. That's what pushed me to, to become uh, a traitor to my family, to Arabic, <laughs> to become like a poor traitor, a criminal traitor, going to Rabat, trying to dominate that thing called French language and to, to tell them, okay, now speak to me in French and see if I will be uh, just a little thing or not. Because yeah. really that was yeah. the beginning for me. I didn't want to be dominated by some people because they knew how to speak French. Well, it's really it's it's super interesting because the um, the tensions of of being an immigrant in in France and Paris are so evident in your book, A Country for Dying. And you know, A, a Country for Dying is a, is a beautiful lyrical novel that has several different narrators, but they all kind of brush across Zahira, who I would say is the main character in in the novel, and and she's a Moroccan immigrant who works in Paris as a prostitute. And the other narrators of, of the novel are they're masons, they're prostitutes, they're revolutionaries, they're journalists, and they're, they're kind of all seeking grace, I would say, in a, in, a, in a battered world that at times seems there just to abuse them almost. It's through its multiple perspectives and, and layers of storytelling. A Country for Dying is a slender novel that is ambitious in its style and its themes. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're going to read a small section for us in, in the original French. Okay, so this is the first page from the book, in French. Il est mort, jeune. 56 ans, c'est jeune, non? C'est une moyenne d'âge raisonnable au Maroc, je sais. L'espérance de vie, c'est comme ça que ça s'appelle. Mais lui, mon petit papa doux et furieux, il n'a pas eu le temps pour rien du tout, ni pour vivre, 
ni pour bien vivre, ni pour bien mourir. C'est arrivé vite, deux ans à peine. Un jour, elle est tombée, chute, évanouissement, tremblement. Que se passe-t-il Mais que se passe-t-il dans son corps On la transportait à l'hôpital public de Rabat. Il y est resté quatre mois et puis on l'a renvoyée chez lui, chez nous, notre case, notre boîte à sardines au piment rouge. Un rude chaussée assez propre grâce à notre mère, à la fois bordélique et hypermaniaque. Et un premier étage bien construit, mais pas encore fini. Deux pièces sans porte, sans peinture. Un décor couleur ciment pour une vie à venir. Un futur à construire pour quand l'argent tombera du ciel en permanence trop bleu. C'est là qu'on l'a mis, le père, qu'on l'a petit à petit oublié, papa, ignoré. C'est ma mère, bien sûr, qui a pris toutes les décisions. Elle ne le reconnaîtra jamais. Les médecins avaient dit qu'il fallait protéger les enfants, les éloigner d'une contagion possible, les séparer du corps malade du père. C'est donc qu'il n'était pas sûr d'eux, ces charlatans son cœur. L'ordre devait être exécuté, un point c'est tout. Ma mère ne veut plus revenir sur ce sujet. Ce qui s'est passé dans le passé est passé. Ce sont ces mots, son passé révolu à elle, pas le nôtre, pas le mien. It's beautiful. I will ask you a little bit later on about your style because the way that I was, I'm just hearing it in French and also reading it in English. You have a very distinct style that we'll, we'll get to in a, in a second. But I wanted to ask just a, a broader question about the novel to, to begin with. And um, later on in the book, one of your, your narrators, Abdullah, um, his name is Alal. He was a hero's lover when she was younger. He writes, but of course there are lines one cannot cross. Even among the poorest of the poor, there are boundaries. And this, this idea, this question of, of, of boundaries is really, I think, vital to this novel, A, a, a Country for Dying. There, there are boundaries of gender, of sexuality, of race, of citizenship, of religion, of power. And just even in, in hearing how you were raised, I, I maybe can get an idea, but what, what, what attracted you to exploring this idea of complicated boundaries? Well, because I am gay, I'm homosexual, <laughs> meaning that I was, so I was among, uh, in my family, I am the number eight, I have six sisters and two brothers, so we were 11 people with my parents in three rooms, meaning that you have to deal daily with the boundaries and the limits and the bodies of other people, not, not to reject them, but how to cohabit with them, how to be next to them. So this idea that I am not alone, yes, I am gay, yes, they know and they don't know, yes, they will not help me. But again, this is the 70s and the 80s, and even in those, those times, even in America, it was not easy to be gay or to be someone. But still, they didn't reject me, they put me in school, they... I ate the same food they did. I listened to the same Egyptian songs, the same, we looked to the same, uh, we watched the same old wonderful Egyptian movies on Moroccan TV on black and white. So we have all these common memories. Even with me, the gay one, I was among them, in the middle of them. They might rethink of me today as someone special, but at that time I was not special at all. I was just one of them dealing with the same thing with them. So my novel, A Country for Dying, is actually a reactualization, an update of those first years. I lived in poverty with my mother and my sister because we really didn't have uh, some days nothing to eat. Like, I'm just giving you an explanation. Like, what does it mean to be poor? And we had... Uh, my, especially my mother, we had to have reunions every day. How are we going to do? How are we going to, to, to find food for 11 stomachs? <laughs> what, to, what clothes we have we can sell and to whom to sell it? What strategies we could, what fake strategies we are going to, to do just in order to, be, to have something to eat? And I have to admit that these years, of thinking just how to get food, how to not even buying clothes, just to get food for all of us. And it was my, my biggest lessons in all the world because it means nothing to be authentic. It means nothing to be honest. It means nothing to be your true self when you are 
you when you are nothing and the world tells you that you are nothing mm. and on top of that you have nothing to eat so how can you can you be a true or honest or wonderful person if you are just hungry so you have to you have to find the way that is not honest i have to admit because it's not honesty that will make you stop being hungry so i saw my mother dealing with all these obstacles all these barriers herself as a woman as a as a wife and how the people treated her humiliated her and really very 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 hard hard things but yet that woman found every time a way to to bring food to us so i just remember all these things when i write and i try to do, put that in the characters for a country for dying because they the, the, the characters they are from morocco algeria and iran and from pakistan they thought at the beginning that paris france is going to be the land of freedom they will be as white french as the white french people but of course they are disenchanted the, the big disappointments because they are just treated as the less than us the white people the, the immigrants the arabs the muslims they are not as good as us and they are exploited somehow by the the economy of france because they are asked to be participants of the economy of france but they are not equal they don't have right. the egalité the the, the france uh, says that it has so because all the characters in this novel they know that france doesn't want them but they want to stay in paris because they think they now they have roots their own roots in france and in paris whether france accepts them or not and this is where I, the novel starts they are disappointed disenchanted but yet they are, they still have the ability to dream to make life and they are so 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 much alive in this novel they are not like uh, scared people or screaming or with they don't have tears there are tears in the novel but much of it it's it's full of life full of life that is not recognized by the french system but me as a writer i give them all the space to be the heroes the big people that i see them and and especially the prostitutes i am right. i will, i can tell you why the prostitutes if you want but uh, um, well, let's, I, let's yeah let's 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 talk about it because i i think you know along with the the characters of the prostitutes just the the real um the real depiction of of sexuality in this in this novel i mean it's you know at one point you describe what what cum feels like in a, in a character's ass you know like that's that's very detailed and i, I so let's talk a little bit about the, the why prostitutes but also along with that i want to just ask a little bit about the tradition about writing about sex especially gay sex in in literature that that comes from the from the arab world i mean i you know i know you you wrote this in french but you're moroccan so maybe you know two things one talk a little bit about your your characters as prostitutes then also talk a little bit about you know what what the uh the tradition of writing about sex and sexuality in in arab literature may be you know there is this idea of freedom and freedom uh, freedom laws political things etc and there is this idea like for instance we think i don't know of sudan maybe and we think that these people are not free because they are ruled by some dictators that don't give them freedom but this is only the political view in the daily life people everywhere on this planet earth they manage to find uh, a way to steal a little bit of freedom a little bit of transgressions little bits of things that make them do what they want at some point and every time i try i write i try to remember this there is the political point of view on us as arabs moroccans muslims and there is this idea of being free that is being defined by the values of the west yes but there is as well there is another way to be free to be to try at least to be free so the characters in, in in a country of dying they live another way of being free they don't care about being uh, in the same freedom as jean paul sartre or simon de beauvoir or uh, movies like francois truffaut or something like that because they don't want 
to be only in that, that, that kind of freedom. There are other way of being free. Yes, in Morocco, we don't have the laws to protect people and homosexuals, LGBTQ people, and even the, the straight people, if they want to have like se free sex and without, but that's the political view on people. The people on the daily life, they have the energy because simply they are human beings. So they cannot live all their lives or buy into the power or buy into the rich people or here in the novel or buy into the white French elite in Paris. Right. It's impossible. They don't want to be like that. And I see the prostitutes because in my neighborhood when I was a little boy, there were a lot of prostitutes and I was always moved to teach by them because not only they are exploited by the society, the contradictions of in the Moroccan society, not only they are exploited by men, by like good men, family men who have families, but yet they would go with the prostitutes and destroy them somehow. But yet these women uh, were full of generous, uh, uh, good energy. Like they, they were somehow kind of saints to me. Like they were the definition for me until now, and they still are the definition of what could we name as the truth, la vérité. Mm. Who are these people who are in the truth? I, you can say to me, you are in the truth because I wrote this book in a truthful way, but yet I am protected by literature while doing that. In the daily life, I don't take that much risks as, a, as prostitutes do every day. Every right. day. So this idea of prostitute is not I'm not uh, it's not some it's not sentimental thing about them. It's like I see I see what they do for society and society is not giving them anything back. Right. That's really interesting. And what about um what about your your very it's hard for me to imagine that you're I mean you were one of the first if not the first Moroccan novelists to come out as gay publicly and so that had to shape a lot of of what you were writing and how you wanted to tell this story did were there other sort of examples that you were looking to from either Morocco or from the rest of the Arab world as sort of models for what you were doing or, or were you charting a, a new path no I told you already already about my mother like yeah. why why the need to look for uh Oscar Wilde example, or I don't know, yeah. I had already my mother battling, fighting, taking risks, yeah. like just to find food for us. Like I saw her, uh, for instance, before some people would come to the house or we're, before we are going to buy vegetables, telling us what to do and what not to do, like how to manage just to save ourselves. She didn't uh, put in me like the good values or to be honest or something. She gave us the true face of the world and of human beings. Like she didn't, uh, she was not politically correct. She was not, because not that she chose to be that, the reality she lived in, she knew that in order to, to survive in, in, in society, you have to find a way to be more than clever than, so me being gay and the first Arab gay, as you said, I, of course, I love Marcel Proust and I read Oscar Wilde, but they are French and British. They talk about another dynamics that are Moroccan. So why to go to them? I should stick to the contradictions, to the oppression, and yet the transgressions I saw just in my family and with my mother and my sisters uh, when they wanted to go dating boys and how what the lies they had, they had to, 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 to invent and all these strategies like the real strategies, like happening in real life, meaning I don't need art to be brave. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I just have to look inside of me and I find the voices of my mothers, my mothers and my sisters. And that's what is in the book with, with all these characters. They, they, even in, when they speak about sex, it's not in, in, in a way that, that make the readers look, oh, this is brave, he is talking so freely about sex. I never think about, about it this way. I just try to be as connected to that world I lived in, where there were so many people going out of jail, going inside of jails, in, out, criminals, <laughs> prostitutes, and they were not bad people. This is, this is very important. We, it, 
they were now canceling culture at that time. It's not because they were going to prisons that when they were out of prison, we stopped dealing with them. We stopped somehow loving them and me super fantasizing sexually about them. So this idea, early, or earlier you were talking about borders and boundaries. So you see, the, the criminals were around me, the prostitutes were around me, and my mother was dealing as well with all these people. And there were a lot of people speaking dirty so, so, so often. Like even Nicki Minaj today is nothing to do. Like <laughs> when I hear Nicki Minaj, I love, by the way, Nicki, Nicki Minaj. I, I think she is incredible because she reminds me a lot of so many characters I, I grew up with next to in Morocco and they were speaking dirty, dirty, dirty language. So in my literature, I just remember this thing that are already still in me. I'm not connected to the Arab literature of 1001 Nights. I love this kind of literature as well, but it seems to me that this is like a, already a mythological literature. Right. The literature I want to do, it has to come from reality. My reality, the reality of people around me, and as you know, reality is rarely, rarely clean area. It's right. always, always dirty. So let's just, I just trying to bring that dirty things with a little bit of poetry. <laughs> that's, that's a great, that's a, that's a great statement, a great thought. And it goes into the, this question of style. Cause you, you're, you do write with great poetry. You do have your, it's very um, lyrical, very sparse. Your sentences and phrases and, and images are just really dynamic. And they're, they're, it's, it's a very unique style that I haven't seen um, before. But one, one of the things that I was really um, unprepared for in reading this was your use of questions. Like you, you almost like you're using the Socratic method with your reader. You're, you're probing character through the questions that these narrators are asking. Um, and I just found that I've never seen that before. So I, I guess, you know, what were, how, how did you develop the style for, for this book in particular? Well, this, my style in this novel, A Country for Dying, is my style in all my other books. The only exception is that the more I write, the more I want to use less words. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to write like long phrases with some complications and to show off, look how my phrases are so complicated, look how I master French language. I just want to follow a rhythm that is already in me. And that rhythm, I have to admit, it's not only mine. It's the rhythm of my mother, for instance, speaking, talking, screaming all day long and sometimes even in the nighttime. So it's, it's a mix, it's a chaotic mix of all these voices that are in me, but it's not only mine. That's why in this novel, you, there are a lot of voices. Right. And the more in all my novels, everything I wrote until now, it's voices imposing their rhythm on literature, on the readers. And that's why I love Nicki Minaj, by the way. This is, this is how I connect to her. She just puts her own rhythm in her songs. And while doing that, you can sense that is not only Nicki Minaj speaking. There are other people from Trinidad because her family are coming from Trinidad. And you see that through this idea of being a rapper, it's just a limit, a limited vision of someone like Nicki Minaj. There are, and plus she has different characters. She sings from different characters that she invents and she gives them names and sometimes she kills them. And actually, this is the same uh, literary experience one of the biggest uh, poets ever did. It's Fernando Pessoa. Yeah. He invented all these characters and he, these voices, and he gave them a name, day of birth, day of death. And Nicki Minaj is doing the same thing for me. <laughs> oh, interesting. I never, I never heard of Nicki Minaj and, and, and Pessoa compared like that, but you're, you're right. Um, you, you know, what you, I'm you've... trying to say here is I don't want to come to literature only with some validation from the past literature. It has to come from life because that's the real legitimacy. It's not the legitimacy of other people, what other people wrote. It has to be real. It has to be flesh. It has to be, 
I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. From uh, tangible, I, I see you. Yeah. What does you, you've talked a lot about your your mother? What does your mother um, think of your your success in your writing? My mother died in two thousand ten. Oh, I'm so sorry. But she, before she died, she saw me becoming a writer. And I have to admit that I have tons of regrets when it comes to my mother, because uh, she died in 2010, I was 37. And so, so imagine, I was 37 years, and I never had the curiosity to ask her specific questions about her past and what she did. And you know, this too much egocentric persons that we are in these modern times that we think only about ourselves, how me, 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 and we don't see the other that is, and the other is so close to you, the mother, and you just see her as someone who wanted to stop you from being free, but it's not true. And I, I, I regret so, so very much. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't give her back enough from everything that she gave me. She didn't protect me uh, as gay or she didn't understand me as gay. She, want, she was very di a dictator person, but still she was fully a mother and she, she constructed the house. She, she was giving us food every day and during many, many years. And now that I am 47 and now that she is especially dead, I see everything that she did, like I see it. And I see her struggles. And I see, and this is the more important thing, how cruel I was, how too much egoistic I was. Mm. I didn't ask her the questions about herself. That's both very powerful and very sad too, and in, in, in many ways. And um, I wonder what, uh, you know, in your novel, yes, all your characters are in Paris and all your characters are, um, in some ways love Paris, but some don't love Paris. There's, there's, you know, one in particular who's, who's sort of um, at least says that despises Paris. What is, what is your Paris like for you right now? Are you, are you is your Paris more like your character's Paris or is your character, is your Paris a, a different kind of Paris? What is, what is Paris like for Abdullah Tai? Now it has been 22 years that I am here in, uh, in Paris. I guess that number, 22, gave some legitimacy for an Arab gay man like me to see I am Parisian, whether they like it or not. <laughs> because even me now, I have like streets where I will never go through today in Paris because I had some, like, I don't know, like a tragic love story there or something like <laughs> Like I have my 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 taboo streets now <laughs> in Paris, and that gives leg legitimacy. Like there are roots, there are roots. Um, no, no, I I feel Parisian, but at the same time I am immigrant. Um, I am yes, I am gay. I'm out, etc. But there are other immigrants around me that they don't have the same luck as I did, and I, I should not. Uh, speak about Paris or France just from my perspective and to tell you I am brave I was I worked for my dream and I managed to succeed da, 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 and then Paris is beautiful no 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 there is not only my ex there is not it's, there are other people experiences and I should think of them like for instance these days we talk so much about changes about post-colonial questions about racism about races and still you see that the older people, I don't want to be here racist against the older people, that some people are having like big problems to deal with that because they are only thinking about them not being able to function in this new society that is struggling. Right. And we should never think of the things like that only for your, your interests, my own interests. There are other people and I am 47. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly um, here in the United States, we can relate to that, that sort of that tension between knowing that, you know, things need to change, but that there are many people that don't want them or can't adapt to that change. So, um, well, thank you, Abdullah. This has uh, been an amazing conversation and, and you've been our, our first guest on Globally Lit. So I've, I've really enjoyed um, this conversation. And um, so Abdullah, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you very much, Matt, and very warm salam to you all. Thank you. You're not going to hear from Emma Ramadan, the translator of Abdel's novel. Emma is a literary translator from French to English who is based in Providence, Rhode Island, where she co-owns Riff Raff Bookstore. She has received an NEA grant, a Fulbright grant, and the 2018 Albertine Prize for Anne Garita's Not One Day. She is a translator of numerous works of literature, which you can read all about by visiting her website, emmaramadan.com. Emma will be in conversation with Laura Maris, an acclaimed writer and translator from French to English. Laura's translation of Camus' The Plague is forthcoming this fall. In books she has translated have been shortlisted for the Oxford Widenfield Translation Prize, the Bale Gifford Prize in the UK, the Mark Linton History Prize from the Lucas Prizes, and the French American Foundation Translation Prize. She currently teaches, at, teaches creative writing at the University of Buffalo and is a teaching artist at the Just Buffalo Literary Center. I encourage you to visit her website, lauramaris.com to learn more about her and her work. Laura and Emma? Hi, Emma, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Laura, I'm good, how are you? Good, it's great to see you and to have this opportunity to talk about your translation of Abdelatay's A Country for Dying. Um, we were thinking that we would start off by just having you read um, just from the beginning for a little bit, and then we'll kind of segue from there into talking about the book and your translation in more detail. Perfect, okay. So I'm going to read from the first page, a part. He died young, 56 years old. That's young, right? It's the average age in Morocco, I know, the life expectancy, that's what they call it. But he, my little father, gentle and furious, he didn't have time for anything. Not to live well, not to die well. It happened quickly, barely two years. One day he fell, a collapse, a faint, tremors. What's happening in his body? We brought him to the public hospital in Rabat. He stayed there for four months and then we brought him back to his house, our house, our little place, our can of sardines with red chilies. A first floor that was relatively clean thanks to our mother who was both messy and super manic and a second floor that was well-constructed but still unfinished. Rooms without doors, without paint, a cement colored decor for a life to come, a future to build once money started falling from a permanently bright blue sky. That's where we put him, our father, where we slowly forgot him, ignored him. It was my mother, of course, who made all the decisions. She'll never admit it. The doctor said that she had to protect the children, distance them from possible contagion, separate them from the father's sick body. It was because they didn't know what was going on, those heartless quacks. The order had to be executed, end of story. My mother doesn't want to talk about it anymore. What happened in the past is in the past. Those are her words about her own past, not ours, not mine. Thank you so much for reading that. I, I love hearing you read it aloud um, just because I think it really does bring up, just in this very short piece of the beginning, uh, it brings up so much of, I think, what's at stake in the kind of interlinked voices in this novel. Um, and, you know, we, we get a, at some point, you know, brought up the idea of um, Shahrazad and like the stories you tell to kind of stay alive. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of translating these interlocking voices. You know, we, we kind of jump into these stories sometimes and it takes a moment before we know whose voice is speaking. And I'm just wondering how that felt as a translator, you know, when you transition from one piece of the book to another, how you differentiated or how you felt yourself sinking into those voices. That's a really, a really lovely question. And I think sort of the central challenge of this book as the translator was sort of representing those different voices, which are distinct, you know, there are some overlapping characters from, from the different parts, but each voice is really its own voice. And so how to keep the voices distinct and recognizable, but, but still keeping the tone of the book very cohesive, keeping the sort of, there's sort of like a, an atmosphere in this book that it overlaps and, and overflows into the different sections. And I, and I think in kind of trying to keep the feeling of 
of the French text, what was really helpful for me was sort of that Abdel Ataya's own writing style kind of expands into all the different voices, even though the voices are distinct, even though the characters are distinct, his writing style is very present throughout the whole book. So that was sort of my like guiding light, the connecting thread was you can sort of hear it as I'm reading, which I think it's nice to when you hear it out loud. It's, you know, staccato sentences, these like short phrases that kind of build on each other and and have this like very particular rhythm that is almost like I, I've often compared Abdel Ataya to Marguerite Duras weirdly and and to the two of my favorite writers who who happen to write kind of in this way that is very commanding it's you know it, it kind of begs to be read aloud and it feels really um his writing is really recognizable in throughout all his books for this sentence style. And so I think like having that as my overarching rhythm was really helpful for me in, in being able to translate these different voices, but kind of keep a cohesiveness to the, to the book as I went. And I love the way that um, one voice kind of overlaps with another uh, in your translation. I think it's really masterfully done. And, and I think it's also what you said about the kind of staccato rhythm and the way that these sentences feel kind of commanding is so interesting to me because at the same time, you know, there's this great moment in the book when one of the characters says to another character, you know, don't talk to me like a professor. Mm. And I think that there's such an interesting stylistic moment happening there because it is kind of a book that deals with questions of like who has linguistic authority you know when <laughs> how do we how do we write in a style that maybe allows for some porousness between different narratives and and different kinds of narrators to find their place in them and i'm just wondering you know was that something that came up for you when you were working like either either culturally in like researching this book or just in the experience of working with the text itself, like trying to kind of grapple with questions of linguistic authority and what it means to write in French as an immigrant in France. And just if there's anything that kind of came up in your process about that. I think Abdel Ataya's books in general, or at least the things that I have read, they feel really accessible, like purposefully very simple, minimal, kind of this really beautiful bare stripped down writing and I think there is an intention to that I think it is meant to be writing for everybody it's not meant to be really obscure dense literary quote-unquote writing I mean it is it these are literary texts and they are published by literary presses but it's but the writing is like very simple and I think that that is was an important thing for me as a translator was not to kind of like make it anything other than what it was. And I think, and that's, and it seems like, you know, that kind of writing would be really easy to translate, but but you have to match it in the same way that you have to match any kind of writing. Um, and in terms of the immigrant experience and, and what it means for Abdelataya's writing, for example, I think, you know, his French, it, it is a different French than some other, some other writers that I've translated, like Anne Goretta, for example, who has a very particular Frenchness to her French, um, very like école normandienne, whatever, you know, it's very, there's a certain history to it. It's very dense with references to French culture. Whereas with, with Abdel Ataya, you know, it is inflected with a little bit of, there's some Arabic in there. There's some, the, the way that he has come to French is necessarily different than the way someone else has come to French and so you kind of can feel it in the writing you can kind of feel it in the 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 way the writing is is made to be accessible to anybody who who might be reading it and you can I, I think for me it's important to follow that but also that when there are Arabic phrases in the text I'm going to keep them in Arabic you know which which feels important and sort of letting his French be its own texture that like hopefully comes across in English as well you know I don't I don't know the, the only specific example I, I can like really think of to give to was we there was a little bit of a debate between me and the editor about um, what word to use for for his penis because the, the word like penis comes up a ton I think I originally had it as penis and I and we ended up settling on cock because it, it felt more like precise to the context and so I think like even something like that even a detail on that level 
it can change the entire tone of, of the book. And so it's like, okay, don't talk to me like a professor, but then also like, don't make it sound clinical. Don't make it sound embarrassed. Don't make it sound timid. Don't make it sound shy. And so there's sort of this like question of, of register as well that, that has to be respected. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. It's like this balance of um, generosity in the, in the text, in the style, but also like a real precision and a real sharp lyricism. Um, so I think you, you did an amazing job of capturing that balance. I don't imagine it was easy <laughs> um, in a text like that, where, you know, there is such like precision in language. It's, it's, I, I would imagine as a translator, you kind of have less room to hide. <laughs> yeah. When it is sort of stripped down like that, as his language is, I think it, it definitely is harder to hide and, and it's, and it feels like every single word it matters like it's not there's no throwaway sentences there's no like he walked to the store it's every single word he uses is so intentional and so carries a little bit of a punch with it and so that felt important to respect as well um yeah I don't know translating's not easy <laughs> as you know <laughs> no really <laughs> yeah and also you know just I was thinking too when you were talking about like the kind of layers in language, um, the multilingual qualities of the text. It's also super layered in terms of place and like places in Paris. And I was thinking in the earlier part of the podcast, like when Taya says that now there are certain streets in, in Paris that are sort of taboo to him because there's some kind of unhappy memory there, um, like a breakup or something. And I was thinking about that so much when I was reading the novel about how you kind of claim a piece of a city as your own, like, you know, the way we have all, we all have our own paths through our cities, <laughs> but um, the novel does such a nice job of, of kind of capturing that way that you feel comfortable in certain parts of a place, but maybe not in others. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the scene where Zahira takes um, her visitor to the Jardin de Luxembourg <laughs> is, you know, it's such a, um, I feel like it's such a loaded scene because their senses of place are so, you know, she and her guest, their senses of place are so conflicting there. Um, and if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, that's my favorite, favorite part of the whole book, actually. And that's the part that I like to read from too. Um, there, so we have Mojtaba, who's an immigrant from, from the Middle East and he's visiting Zahira and he really wants to go to the Jardin de Luxembourg. It's like, that is, he has come to Paris for this thing and Zahira is so shy about going there because it's, it's the definition of like the part of Paris that is not for people like Zahira. It's the part of Paris that is not meant for North African Middle Eastern immigrants. It is meant to be like, for Parisians, for tourists, for whatever. And, and there, is, there is this like unspoken boundary line there that Zahira really feels as somebody who lives in Paris and is on the margins of Paris and is constantly being told like where she can and cannot move and operate in the city. But because Mojtaba is, is just kind of coming through, passing through, like not really necessarily subject to those same boundary lines, um, he feels this like sense of freedom and when he brings her there they like wait for the for the gates to close for the park to close and then he says the garden is ours you know and and so it's it's this really beautiful moment of being able to reclaim spaces that are not quote-unquote meant for uh certain kinds of people and this is a thing that comes up a lot in Abdelatai's writing too is he has I translated this other short story of his with Chris Clark called A Garden While Waiting and it's the same idea of building public parks in Morocco and, and who the parks are meant for and who has access to them and it's interesting that something like a public garden like the Jardin du Luxembourg could, could also be a place of exclusion and does that have to be the case how can we sort of ignore those boundary lines and and make those spaces for everybody again and and I think the book does like that character Mosheva does a really beautiful job of saying you know okay we're not supposed to be there well we'll just wait until it's you know until everyone else is gone and then it gets to be entirely ours and that can be a way of of reclaiming a space and I think that's one of my absolute favorite parts of the book. 
I love that part as well. And I think, um, yeah, what you just said is so beautiful because it is, it is such a moment of imagining in fiction how to reclaim something that in the habits of daily life is actually really exclusionary. <laughs> Yeah. And, and um, I think that that it just it's such a it's such a beautiful passage in the book. And I'm just wondering one last question for you. It's so interesting these these first person narrators and the way they're kind of interlocking. And what it really brought up for me is the way that people individuals kind of touch all these other people in their communities. So when you have these first person narrators, you're actually getting a representation of like the people that they've interacted with, kind of in this case, you know, on both sides of the Mediterranean. And I'm wondering, you know, if that changed how you thought about the first person narrator and translation at all, how you kind of considered these interlocking communities that are evoked when someone is talking about their memories or their day to day life. Um, just the way those casual kind of interactions in cities and between families come up through the first person narrator in this book. Mm, I think that's a, that's a really lovely question. And I mean, what I'm not sure I have a great answer to, because now I want to keep thinking about it. Um, but I, I do think it sort of speaks a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, uh, before we started recording, actually, which is this, I was saying that I was uh, when I when I came to this book and I saw that it was not linear and it was sort of, you know, it's like four different stories that some overlap and some don't kind of put together that that between those four stories, you get a wider picture of like this entire community. And I think there's something really beautiful about non-traditional narrative structures that kind of do exactly that, that you have these first person narrators and you're getting pieces of stories from each of them and then when you put them all together you're sort of learning so much more you're kind of you're it's as if it's they're all one narrator and you're getting four different perspectives but like all telling kind of one big story and so I like this idea of not just thinking about it as being a non-traditional narrative structure that kind of allows for for interlocking stories and and one one larger story, but also thinking of it as non-traditional narrative uh, or non-traditional narrator, who you know it's almost like the the like hydra of you know like one character one one kind of figure with four different heads or four different voices, and I. I like that. I do think this book does a really good job of speaking to a specific experience, which is that of immigrants in Paris, those living on the margins of a city like Paris, a city that was meant to be sort of a dream, uh, like a refuge, and then turns out to be really exclusionary. It does a good job of, of telling that specific experience while, while showing that it's really not a specific, it's really like a very widespread, a very common experience. And these are just some of the, some of the narrators, some of the voices, some of the stories that play into such a big community. Um, I don't know if I answered your question at all, but I, <laughs> but I, I like thinking about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about the, the four-headed hydra <laughs> narrator. That's amazing. And um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this book. And yeah, thank you for congratulations on your translation. <laughs> really thank you. Um, thank you so much for, for for the really lovely, thoughtful questions and for asking me about the book. Finally, we end this inaugural episode of Globally Lit with a review of the French graphic novel A Beautiful Darkness. The review was written by Elisa Cohen, the manager and buyer for the Potter's House bookstore in Washington, DC. Prior to her current role, she was a bookseller at Busboys and Poets and at Upshur Street Books. She enjoys graphic novels, scenes set on dark and misty moors, and of course, works in translation. A tiny young woman in a polka dot dress wanders through a lush forest of oversized clover and grasses upon the cover of Beautiful Darkness. The cartoonish style in which the girl is drawn, along with the rich plant life, makes for an eye-catching image. So eye-catching that you could be forgiven for missing the oversized hand dominating the right side of the picture. The hand is dull and green with rot blending into the scenery. Created by Fabian Vellman and Karuskoe, a husband and wife team of Marie Pomapoe and Sebastian Cosset, 
Beautiful Darkness is easily one of the most memorable and disturbing books I've ever read. Translated from the French by Helga Dasher, Beautiful Darkness builds on shocking contrasts. The story begins with a prince and princess confessing their love in classic fairy tale style. Suddenly, their very world starts to collapse around them. You see, it turns out that this cast of tiny people have been living in the body of a human child. The child has died in the middle of a forest, and now her body, their home, is beginning to rot. The princess, Aurora, tries to maintain her community through such a traumatic loss, but she is helpless to defend against the violence of nature and the fairy's own cruel impulses. Most of the book examines these efforts as many gruesome deaths chip away at the cast. The fairies are drawn with brilliant colors and in charming stylization, but the rest of the world is rendered in detailed watercolors. While the fairies would be more at home in a classic Disney film, the forest is uncaring. Animals do not sing or offer aid. Instead, they simply ignore the fairies or fall upon them as a source of food. While Aurora herself tries to communicate with the beasts, and so far as to arrange a party with tiny cups and plates, they react as they would in the wild. Still, the violence of nature is mild compared to that of the fairies. The primary antagonist, Zelly, is prone to manipulation and narcissism. Her friend, Plim, is easily disregards the lives of those around him. Most of the unnamed fairies barely seem to notice when one of their number dies, even when they are directly responsible. They act with a sort of disturbing, blasé childishness. These tiny people are drawn like Victorian flower fairies. They look like characters from a children's book, their speech and attitudes reflecting this aesthetic. First as when the larger characters calmly devours a smaller one before asking a friend to play make-believe. Plim watches a bee kill his companion and his only reaction is to find someone to carry the firewood. Zelly orchestrates a premature burial on a whim. In an interview with comic book resources, Pomopoe stated that she wrote Beautiful Darkness as an exploration of innocence, death, and growing up. Her co-writer Velman said in an interview with Drawn and Quarterly that they worked together to maintain an atmosphere of mystery about the story. We never do find out how the child died or anything about the nature of these fairies. The story becomes something of a dream. There is no need for plausibility. The narrative only must follow its dream logic. And like many dreams, it sinks into the mind and lingers for quite some time. So Beautiful Darkness is something of a challenging read. In bringing the book to an English-speaking audience, Dasher, of course, had all the usual challenges of a translator, but there's the additional complexity of illustration. While a graphic novel removes the need for a great deal of descriptive writing, the translator must be able to work with not only the original author, but artists, inkers, and colorists as well. Translation is never a matter of literalism, but how much freedom does a translator have when working with such a visual narrative? Depending on the translator, a text can emphasize or minimize certain actions or even scenes. Velman and Pamapue maintain a simple syntax and vocabulary throughout. Aurora's speech is gentle, the prince tends towards dramatics, and most of the unnamed fairies sound like children. Only Jane, the first fairy we see living away from the community, speaks in a more casual, less stylized fashion. Both writers have talked about the very deliberate way they cultivated a sort of saccharine innocence amongst the fairies. They are meant to be like children and represent the ways in which adults tend to misremember youth. In his interview, Velman explains, as adults, we don't want to see some of the undercurrents that human beings face from their childhood because it reminds us that it was not very fun. We are made aware again and again that innocence does not equate to kindness or confidence. This contrast between playful aesthetics and horrifying action is done with great purpose and to great effect, a contrast Dasher had to maintain in the journey from French to English. On the other hand, the natural world is not all moralizing. In that same interview, Velman explains that unlike the fairies, the animals, the plants, they all act without malice, though they are no less destructive. It is very fitting then that backgrounds and beasts appear in realistic watercolor, and that the only sounds are the murmuring calls and cries one would hear in the woods. I cannot help but admire the skillful way in which Dasher's translation navigates that complex contrast. Beautiful darkness depends on the delicate interplay of innocence and brutality, and it requires a subtle grasp of language and culture. So much is communicated, not in writing or even images, but in the subtlety of atmosphere, in the ways in which the story builds upon a history of folktales and children's media. It takes a deft hand to adjust the text from one language to another, and thankfully, Dasher has done an exceptional job. So whether you choose to find the book in its original French, or else the English translation, do find somewhere hidden and quiet in which to read. Such sweetness deserves to be savored. Thanks to Abdullah, Emma, Laura, and Eliza for participating in this first episode of Globally Lit. 
A very special thanks to Susie Rigdon at Fall for the Book and Watershed Lit at George Mason University. Globally Lit is part of the Watershed Lit Podcast Network, and Susie is our editor and sound engineer. And thanks, of course, to Anna Thorne at Books Across Borders. Remember to buy the books we featured today at Riff Raff Bookstore in Providence, Rhode Island at riffraffpvd.com. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with our second episode of Globally Lit. But for now, I'm Matt Davis saying bye and thank you.